presence of the Holy Spirit. Uh, This Bible college, this Bible school that was in Topeka had been around for a number of years. It was actually uh, uh, founded as part of the holiness movement. The holiness movement started soon after the Civil War. It was spearheaded in large part by Methodist preachers and laymen. They were concerned that in the United States, uh, Christianity was falling prey to an increasing rationalism that wanted to diminish the miracles in the gospel. And it was falling prey to the greed that was just uh, endemic in that gilded age period of our history. So the holiness movement was a group, uh, and uh, one of their, their chief tools was camp meetings. The holiness movement was a group that wanted to bring about a revival of real, warm, practical holiness in the church. And they founded Bible colleges like the one in Topeka, Kansas. These students that were gathered there had been studying the book of Acts, and their teacher, a man by the name of Charles Parham Fox, had encouraged them to pursue a particular line of thinking. These students had noticed in the book of Acts that when the Holy Spirit was poured out, he manifested his presence by speaking in tongues. And that's the sort of power that they were looking for. So they gathered together to pray on that evening. And uh, as they prayed, the prayer meeting extended long into the hours of the next day. And uh, Agnes Osmond, one of these students, early in the morning said to her teacher, Would you lay your hands on me and pray that I would have the full manifestation of the Holy Spirit? Charles Parham Fox, by his testimony, put his hands on her. He didn't pray three sentences before this angelic glow came over her face and she looked at him and started speaking in Chinese. In fact, she only spoke in Chinese, according to to Parham Fox. She spoke in Chinese for three days. And when they asked her to write down what she was thinking, she didn't write in English. She only wrote in Chinese. And over the next few days and next few hours, 20 other students had similar experiences and they themselves spoke 20 different languages. And that was the beginning of the Pentecostal movement. Pentecostal movement within Christianity, uh, within 10 years of that event on New Year's Day, 1901, uh, 50,000 people would share Agnes Osmond's experience. And today, uh, charismatic Christianity, there are 500 million charismatic and Pentecostal Christians in the world. And it's actually the fastest growing branch of Christianity. Um, I'm going to return to that story of what happened in Topeka, Kansas in just a couple of minutes. But one of the things that should strike you about those students that's very interesting is we share some of their same concerns. We want in our lives real, warm, practical holiness. We do not want a Christianity that has been gutted because of our so-called intellectualism. And we don't want a faith that has been shredded by our love of material possessions. We want, like they did, real, warm, practical holiness. And we also are studying the book of Acts. As I mentioned a few weeks ago, we're going to take a break from our normal walk through the book of Acts this morning. And I want to talk with you about the supernatural phenomenon in the book. Tongues, signs, wonders, prophecy, and I want to talk about the role that they play in the church today. Uh, Listen here to what uh, Grace's doctrinal statement says. This is section five of our doctrinal statement. We believe in the Holy Spirit 
who executes the will of the Father and the Son within creation. His ministry glorifies Jesus Christ and implements Christ's work of redemption. He regenerates all believers, securing them in Christ forever and empowers them for godly living and service. The work of the Spirit in the church is evidenced by the fruit of the Spirit and the building up of the body of Christ into Christ's likeness. The ministry of the Spirit does not need miraculous verification. His work does not guarantee abundant wealth or a life without difficulty. The Spirit controls, leads, guides, and transforms believers. This is hardly a ferocious, anti-charismatic statement. And yet... We disagree with those Bible college students when our, when our statement says the work of the Spirit does not need miraculous verification. A, a church is like a family in many ways. And, and every family at every point in time, every parent has a conversation with their child where they explain why their family is different than other families. Does this sound somewhat familiar to you? Maybe you hear from your children one of these lines. But Billy's parents are going to let him. Does that sound familiar? They can go see that movie. They can go to that party. You're the only one in the whole school who won't let me go. And those are the moments where you repeat certain phrases, right? You say things that have been passed down. Moses could have carved these in the Ten Commandments. They've been said so many times. Billy's parents may let him do that, but this is not Billy's house, and I am not Billy's dad. Or, uh, someday when you have your own house, you can make your own rules. But here, right now, this is what we do. I see enough smiles to know these are familiar conversations, right? These are wonderful parenting opportunities. <laughs> your kids don't know that later you, 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 you talk to your husband or your wife, you say, are you sure we're doing the right thing? They don't know that. Don't tell them that. Okay, that's a secret. All right? But um, um, this is a wonderful opportunity for you to have... What gracious conversations where you, you talk humbly about your own standards and your own principles and your own values in, in your family. This, it's difficult to do this humbly and graciously because you do think that your standards are better than other people's. I mean, if you thought theirs were better than yours, you would, you would adopt them, right? I mean, you do think you're making a right decision and maybe Billy's parents aren't being as wise as they should be. That, that's true, but, but you want to have that conversation without making it look like you're the best family that has ever walked the planet or that Billy's parents are, are incompetent ignoramuses. You want to have that conversation that way, right? That's not easy to do. And actually, there are some times when Billy's parents are, Billy's parents are incompetent ignoramuses. And you've got to warn them. I know Billy's parents are letting him do that, but that just seems dangerous and foolish to me, and, and we're not going to do it. Well, we're going to have a conversation similar to that this morning. Why is our church different when it comes to spiritual gifts than other churches? Um, some of these churches that we love and have many, many things in common with, why do we read Acts one way and avoid other ways of reading Acts? Why do we warn one another about certain ways to read uh, the Bible? I want to unfold some of these differences today, and my hope is to be humble and gracious when humility and graciousness is called for, and to be uh, clear 
when warning is called for. So here's how I want to proceed. This is what I want to do. I want to ask and answer three questions. Number one, what was happening in the New Testament? What does Acts say about what the early church experienced? All right, that we're going to ask that question. Secondly, what is happening today? What does, how, we, how does what we see on television or at conferences or uh, read about in books compare to what happened in the New Testament? So we're going to hold up the New Testament, then we're going to look at some of the things that are happening today and compare that to the New Testament. And third, more positively, what do we want to emphasize as a congregation? What was happening then? What's happening now? And and I want, to, I want you to see then from that, what do we value? We believe in the supernatural. We believe that God heals. We believe that the Spirit is alive and that he indwells those who are followers of Jesus Christ. But, but our understanding of Scripture moves us to desire and to long for intimacy with God in different ways. And I want to show you that uh, this morning. We're going to do the. We're going to spend the, the, the most time on the first question, um, and uh, so let's let's begin here. What was happening in the New Testament? I want to speak briefly about two, or broadly rather, about two spiritual supernatural phenomena, namely tongues, speaking in tongues, and signs and wonders. All right, speaking in tongues first. What is speaking in tongues? Speaking in tongues involves speaking in unlearned foreign languages unlearned foreign languages. I'm going to look at a number of different passages in the book of Acts. I wrote the references down. I printed out some verses on your note sheet. You might want that. But take your Bibles and turn me to Acts chapter 2. We're going to flip around the book of Acts uh, a little bit. uh, And then... um, we're going to uh, look at a number of different passages. <laughs> my first week at Grace, or my second, I can't remember which, I was preaching a, through a number of different passages in the Bible, and I said to the congregation, we're going to flip around the Bible like a roulette wheel, which was not a good analogy in a Baptist church. So, we're not going to do that, but we are going to start in Acts chapter 2, all right? So, Acts chapter 2, hopefully I've gotten a little smarter then, since then. All right, Acts chapter 2, we read this a few weeks ago. Look what Acts 2, 4 says. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. And the word tongues, translated tongues there, is the word languages. In fact, the Holman Christian uh, Standard Bible, if you have one of that fine translation, translate this word as languages. These are human languages that the speaker did not know. And that's very clear. In fact, there's no other understanding possible of this passage other than that because of what verse 8 says. Um, there's a, a large group of people there from other nations. And, um, uh, well, start in verse 7. Utterly amazed. Oh, let's start in verse 6. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism. Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own languages. So speaking in tongues involves speaking other human languages that you have not yet learned. It's a miracle. 
There's a lot that we don't understand about this. Um, how much did the speakers understand when they were speaking? Were they trying to speak Aramaic and this other language came out so they knew what they were saying? 1 Corinthians 14 seems to indicate maybe not. How much control did they have over this? Um, was it uncontrolled? They couldn't stop. Or, um, did they all speak it at one time or did they take turns speaking these foreign languages? Questions not described in detail in this passage. This phenomenon acts, I think, though it's a sign to everyone that God speaks their language. God speaks everyone's language. He is not just the God of the Jewish world, and he, he doesn't just speak Hebrew. He's not the God of just the Western world. He's not just the white man's God. God speaks Swahili and Hindi and Mandarin and Spanish and Portuguese and French and Italian and English and Parthian and Egyptian and Mesopotamian and Cappadocian and, and whatever they speak in Pontus. God speaks it. Um, this is why we are so much in favor of Bible translation work all around the world. We know people who are engaged. We support missionaries who are engaged in Bible translation work. And we want everyone in the world to know that the God who made them speaks their language. And they can hear about God's love in their own heart language. That's what tongues is. Now, what's tongues for? What is tongues for? Why are they part of this record of the early church? Two reasons I want to point out to you. First, tongues were given to show the presence of the Holy Spirit. They show the presence of the Holy Spirit. They demonstrate that the Spirit has really come. Now, let's look at a couple different passages here. Flip over with me to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10, verse 44. Acts 10, verse 44 is a major turning point in the book of Acts because here the gospel moves from Jews in Jerusalem and Judea. It moves, it crosses into Gentiles. This is a major ethnic boundary that the gospel is breaking. Um, it is a significant, it is as significant more so in world history than Brown versus Board of Education was in American history. This is the gospel breaking ethnic boundaries. And look what happens when Peter is preaching, Acts 10.44. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised, the Jewish believers who had come with Peter, were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even, oh, even on Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Peter can't believe this. The Holy Spirit is coming to Gentiles. And how did Peter know it? They were speaking in tongues. Now, flip back with me to Acts chapter 8. We're going to get to Acts 19 in a minute. But go back with me to Acts chapter 8. And we have here the pouring out of the Spirit again. And this passage doesn't specifically mention tongues. I will say that right up front. But it seems that that's what's happening here. Let me uh, explain why here. So um, uh, Philip goes and he preaches in Samaria. They don't receive the Spirit, but verse 14, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the Word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria, two apostles. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit. 
Because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them, they had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, it does not say what happened, but there must have been some sign that the Spirit came because, verse 18, Simon saw that the Spirit was given, and it was in connection with the laying on of the apostles' hands. Now, Flip with me over to Acts chapter 19. So Acts 19. There are three places in the book of Acts where tongues is mentioned. Acts 2, Acts 10, and Acts 19. Boy, and Acts 19 is a strange passage. Acts 19 deals with some believers who knew Jesus had risen from the dead and believed in him, but they were not in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, and they didn't know about the Holy Spirit. It's a strange passage. We'll, we'll talk more about it when we get to it. But um, look what happened here. Um, verse 6. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. There's two things that I want you to notice here about tongues and the Spirit's presence in the book of Acts. First, you should notice that it's always, the Spirit's coming is always associated with the presence of the apostles. Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 19, the, the, the apostles are the ones who are laying on, laying on hands and the Spirit is being poured out. So that, that's very important. The second thing you should notice here is I think that the gift of tongues in the book of Acts is mentioned here specifically to talk about how the Spirit is moving across ethnic boundaries. Acts chapter 2, the Spirit comes and Jews speak in tongues. Acts chapter 8, the Spirit comes. It doesn't say they speak in tongues. There's some sign as, as the Spirit comes down to the Samaritans. Acts chapter 10, the Holy Spirit comes on the Gentiles and they speak in tongues. What, what is going on? Luke is writing this to show us that the Spirit, it is God's will that the gospel spread to all ethnicities and the, the speaking in tongues is a sign that the Spirit has indeed been poured out. It's possible. How can it be, these Jewish believers say, that the Holy Spirit comes even on Gentiles? Well, look, they're speaking in tongues just like we did. The Holy Spirit must have come. The presence of the Holy Spirit. Now, why else are uh, tongues in the New Testament? A second reason, to provide divine revelation. To provide divine revelation. God speaks to his people through tongues. I think that in the New Testament church, tongues function very much like prophecy. These uh, messages from God. In Acts 19, it says they prophesied, they spoke in tongues and prophesied. Well, what happened is someone would speak in tongues, it would be translated, and then that message, that translated message, would be considered and obeyed as a message from God. God communicated to his people through tongue speakers. This is what was happening, it seems, in the church in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. We don't have time to look at that passage in detail. The church of Corinth was a mess. And they were under the impression that the more impressive supernatural things they could do, the more spiritual they were. So if they, could, if they could really have big signs, big wonders, a lot of tongue speaking, it would be a sign that they were spiritual people. And, and Paul comes in to, to counter that. That's not true. 
In fact, he lays down a couple of rules for tongue speaking to try to control what is happening in the church in Corinth. Look at these rules in 1 Corinthians 14, 27 to 28. I think it's written down on your sheet here. It says, If anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at the most three should speak one at a time and someone must interpret. If there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. Uh, This is a very clear statement, and I can say it on apostolic authority. If there is tongue speaking in a congregation, and it's done by more than three people, and more than one person is speaking at once, and it's not interpreted, it is not the apostolic use of the gift of tongues. Now, that's a brief overview of the gift of tongues. Let's consider signs and wonders. Signs and wonders. There are signs and wonders all over the book of Acts. Next week, Lord willing, we're going to look at Acts chapter 3, which is the most detailed and descriptive um, uh, act of healing in all of the book of Acts. And we're going to rejoice together that Jesus Christ is the author of life. And, And there are signs and wonders all over the book of Acts. The dead are raised, the lame are made to walk, uh, the sick are raised, demons are cast out. Peter, when he walks along in Jerusalem, his shadow heals people. Paul, when he was out serving, Paul was a hardworking man, we're going to talk about this later, and uh, he would have handkerchiefs, he'd wipe his head and he'd set them down, and people would, would nab him, they'd take him from him, and they'd go and put them on sick people, and those sick people were healed which is disgusting, these sweat rags healing people. I mean, happy they're healed, but it's kind of gross, right? You know, Here's the used Kleenex from the Apostle Paul. Rub it on your wound. Ew. But the Bible doesn't say used Kleenex. I made that up, okay? So just don't, don't quote me on that. Now, uh, so this is it's amazing signs and wonders all the way through the book of Acts. We're going to look at now. Again, why were there signs and wonders in the book of Acts? Two, two reasons. First, they show us that God is compassionate. They show us that God is, is compassionate. The apostles are doing the same thing that Jesus did. They're healing sick people. They're showing what God is like. See, the Bible teaches us that human disease is a result of our spiritual condition. It's a manifestation of our spiritual condition. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God in the garden, they disconnected themselves from the author of life. And ever since that day, human beings have lived in decaying, dying bodies. I have an app on my phone. If I want, I can push a button at any time, and this app will tell me how many hours of battery life I have left on my phone. You have 12 hours, the phone says, before I'm going to be dead and useless. You don't have one of those timers anywhere in your body, but your life is just as limited. The reason, of course, is because we are disconnected from our Creator. In fact, I think your physical body is the way in which you feel most significantly, the most easily accessible way that you experience disconnection from our Creator is in the decaying of our bodies. Why do you get those wrinkles? The manifestation of, of your spiritual condition. Why does your back ache like it does? Because you live and you are among a people of rebellion against God. Why is your hair falling out? Well, you look more handsome, but why... 
Why is your hair falling out? It's a sign of the condition of your heart. Now, there's no correspondence. There's usually no one-to-one correspondence, right, between uh, uh, sin and, and illness. So it, it's not every lie doesn't result in a cold, and, and every greedy thought doesn't manifest itself in a wrinkle, right? But there is a, a general correspondence between sin and sickness. And the good news of the Bible, Isaiah 53 says that when Jesus died on the cross, it is by his wounds that we are healed. Jesus Christ came and he lived a perfect life and he died the death that we deserve to die, paying the penalty for our sins. And when he died, he uh, defeated sin, paid for sin, and he robbed sin and sickness and death of its power. They're toothless. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, they might still gum on you a little bit, but their bite has been robbed of its power. Someday, someday, all sin and sickness and death are going to be destroyed forever. And what's happening in the book of Acts is just a foretaste, just a foretaste of that great day. Now, John Stott says that the New Testament miracles, and he bases this on Acts chapter 3, have five characteristics, five things that are true about New Testament miracles. First, they are the healing of a verifiable disease. There's a real organic disease that happens uh, in these healings. Number two, these people are um, they're healed with the command, in the name of the Lord Jesus, be healed. Third, they're instantaneous. They happen like that. Fourth, they're complete. They're complete healing. And fifth, they're verifiable. They're verifiable. They show that um, God is compassionate. Now, secondly here, though, the signs and wonders also validate the message of the apostles. They validate the message of the apostles. They demonstrate that the apostles really are messengers from God. We're going to look at a couple of verses here. Acts 4.33. Look at how this works. Acts 4.33. With great power... Oh, I'll give you a moment to turn to it. It's a little bit left of where we were, right? Acts 4.33. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all. All right, Acts 8, 6. It's a reference to power there. Acts 8, 6. Uh, this is again Philip preaching. One of the only, a, a very few, excuse me, a very few instances of non-apostles performing signs and wonders. Verse 6 of chapter 8. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. One more here, Acts 14.3, Paul and Barnabas in Iconium. Acts 4.3, 14, excuse me, 14.3. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord who confirmed, oh that's good, who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. Now, Paul made a similar point in 2 Corinthians 12, 12. That verse is written down for you. It's very important. He refers to signs and wonders as the marks of an apostle. I persevered, he said, in demonstrating to you the marks of a true apostle, including signs, wonders, and miracles. That's an important verse. I'll tell you why in in just a minute. 
What we're going to see in the book of Acts here is that these miracles and preaching go together. The signs and wonders validate the message of the apostles. They show that they are truth tellers about Jesus. And the miracles set the stage for the preaching. And sometimes, oh, without corrective preaching, the miracles backfire. We're in Acts 14, so let's look down here at another city where Paul and Barnabas went. Acts 14, verse 8. Look what it says here. In Lystra, there sat a man who was lame. He had been that way from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him and said that he, had, that he saw that he had faith to be healed and called out, Stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw... What Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, The gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and reeds to the city gates, because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. These are not the gods that Paul and Barnabas are representing. This miracle has kind of backfired. No, he says, no, no. We are not Zeus. We're not Hermes. I have come to tell you about the God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes it's not a foolproof plan here. Now, if you were to step back and look at the Bible as a whole, you would find four, maybe you could put two of them together, three great periods of miracles in the Bible. And they all coincide with new significant revelations. First, there's Moses. Moses performs great miracles. And what does Moses do? He gives us the first five books of the Bible. Then there's the period of Elijah and Elisha. They don't write any part of the Bible, but they're the first prophets. And we have this whole collection of prophetic books in the Bible. Then there's the period of Jesus, and maybe the period of the apostles, or you could put them together. The period of Jesus and the apostles, great signs and wonders, great miracles. And what do we have? We have the New Testament. What I want you to see about this is, is this. We're, we're not embarrassed about this fact that, that there is no clear passage in the New Testament that definitively says that the era of miraculous gifts has passed. There's no definitive verse that says that in the Bible. What we do see, though, is that the apostles have passed. These gifts are closely associated with the apostles. The apostles pray and people receive the Holy Spirit. uh, Peter's shadow heals. Paul's handkerchiefs heal. These signs and wonders are interwoven in the ministry of the apostles. And the age of the apostles has passed. There are no New Testament apostles. They were the eyewitnesses of Jesus. You know how important that is in the book of Acts? Do you remember that? You shall be my witnesses. What happens in the book of Acts? We have them doing miracles and praying and the Holy Spirit comes. And, and this is a sign from God that these apostles are genuine eyewitnesses and should be heeded and should be listened to. We don't have apostles anymore. Instead, we have their testimony and their teaching contained for us in the New Testament. Now, more briefly, let's talk about what's happening here today. Uh, among uh, charismatic teachers and preachers. And I want to describe what's happening today by way of contrast. I want to contrast what's happening today with the New Testament. 
Um, if you look at what's in this book and if you look at what's happening today, you can see that what's being claimed today does not match what's in the Bible. Now, I'm going to give you these contrasts full well knowing that I'm painting with a very broad brush. The charismatic movement is very broad and very diverse. And it includes at one end of the spectrum brothers and sisters like those that we dearly love at Crossway Church of Lancaster that are part of the Sovereign Grace family of churches. There are two churches in Lancaster County that in particular over the the 15 years I've been here have sought to be a great encouragement to me and to this church. And and our brothers and sisters at Crossway are among that group. Uh, Although um, they believe in the continuation of the miraculous gifts, they're technically charismatic. Um, These contrasts do not apply in large measure to them. The contrasts actually describe people on the other end of the charismatic spectrum, people who are more marked from their deviation from the Bible than their commitment to the Bible, like our brothers and sisters at Crossway. So I'm painting with a broad brush, but here they are. Four characteristics of the contemporary charismatic movement. Number one, they speak in gibberish, not languages. I wish there was a more polite word than gibberish. I use my thesaurus. I couldn't find one. So gibberish is what it is. All right. Um, you know, when Agnes Osmond, when she first started and she asked uh, the, her teacher to pray for her, um, he, uh, she started and everybody thought that she was speaking Chinese. They thought, in keeping with the New Testament, that they were all speaking foreign languages. In fact, they were so confident of this that from that Bible school, people, those students, went overseas to, to do missions because they thought God had miraculously equipped them with the gift of speaking in foreign languages. So they went to China and they went to Europe and they went to Africa because they thought that they were speaking genuinely these foreign languages. But they weren't speaking in foreign languages. They were speaking syllabic gibberish. Um, I listen sometimes, uh, actually frequently in the morning, to the news on uh, WHP, the radio station in Harrisburg. And the morning host is a man by the name of R.J. Harris. R.J. Harris has a good sense of humor. And every now and then he, does, he speaks in his foreign languages. He's very good at it. What he does is he takes on a particular accent a French accent or a Russian accent, and he puts together syllables that he heard has heard from these languages. And it sounds, he does it with such confidence and fluidity, it sounds to a non-native speaker like he's speaking that language. It's, it, it's quite funny, I, I find it to be. Now, when those first Pentecostals in 1900 figured out that they were not actually speaking foreign languages like they thought... They did not repent, and they should have. They didn't repent and and confess that they were not actually speaking in languages. Um, Instead, what they did is they, they, they said, now we have a new, we're speaking new heavenly languages. We're speaking angelic languages, prayer languages, languages that don't fit any of the criteria of normal human languages, and they made this claim without any support of the Bible itself. Again, unlearned human languages. That's what the gift of tongues is. And, and even if we, if we grant that, that, although the Bible wouldn't hold this up, even if we grant that, that, the, uh, that they can be non-human, angelic, or prayer languages, 
<laughs> you would be hard-pressed to find any church in the charismatic movement who upholds the apostolic instructions in 1 Corinthians 14. No more than two or three, one at a time, always interpreted. Second here, the charismatic movement is rife with counterfeits, not miracles. Counterfeit claims, not miracles. There has yet to be one healing from all of these conferences and crusades and meetings that has met the criteria of a New Testament healing. Ten years ago, there was a a man, his name is Peter Wagner. He's a a charismatic um, uh, teacher. And he claimed that he was the new Apostle Peter, that that the beginning of the 21st century was the beginning of a new apostolic age, and he claimed that as a sign of his apostleship, he cured mad cow disease in Europe. The problem is, there's still mad cow disease in Europe. If he was an apostle, you'd think he would have known that. Uh, investigative reports have shown that all these healings, many of them are very carefully produced. The Canadian Broadcasting Company several years ago did a documentary. They took cameras, uh, hidden cameras into a meeting. They found people at the bottom of stages. The faith healer would be on the front. Uh, on the stage would be people, uh, monitors at the bottom of the stage. And if you came with a very serious illness, something like Down syndrome, the, the moderators would actually send you away. HBO did a series, uh, followed seven people who were supposedly healed by faith healers. At the end of two years, they were all showing the same symptoms that they, were, what they went to the stage for. Uh, actually, one of the saddest things that you could ever see, I believe it was in Wall, the Wall Street Journal, a man wrote about uh, what happens at the end of some of these uh, faith healing crusades. And he said, it's, it's terrible. You look out in the auditorium and most of the people are gone but people there are still sitting there people in their wheelchairs children hooked up to oxygen machines parents who brought their family hoping desperately for a cure for an answer and there they are everything is gone all the hoopla all the main events and and they're still there sick Counterfeits, not miracles. Third, the charismatic movement is marked by false teaching, not apostolic truth. False teaching, not apostolic truth. Again, there are charismatics who, aside from their teaching on spiritual gifts, they preach the gospel well. Again, our brothers and sisters at Crossway Church in particular in the Sovereign Grace movement, they preach the gospel well. But as a whole, this movement is suffused, stuffed with error. What started as speaking in tongues has changed over the years, and now it's home to unbiblical practices and preaching. Things like slaying in the spirit, uh, name it, claim it theology, holy laughter, um, worst of all, worst of all, prosperity preaching. Telling people in Jesus' name that it is God's will for them to be wealthy and healthy is a pernicious lie. It is a hurtful, hateful heresy. It's destructive and demonic in its origin and in its manifestations. It's wrong to tell people that if they have enough faith, God will heal them. That if they just trust God more, he would make them rich. It's contrary to so much 
of what is in the Bible. And this teaching is spreading. It's flashing across Africa. In fact, there are many African churches where the, the congregants know more about the fact that God is going to make them rich than they do that, the, that Jesus died on the cross for them. How does health and wealth teaching, how does it help you when your village is being overtaken by Ebola? What does it do for you? It's a heinous, heinous lie. Now, fourth here. The charismatic movement is characterized by charlatans, not apostles. Charlatans, not apostles. The movement is rife with false teaching. It is also marked by immorality, deceit, and greed. Now, turn with me to the book of Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. One of the things that the apostles did before they died is they warned the churches. Look out, they said. The New Testament is, uh, you know, in the age of the apostles, it's very clear in warning us about what's going to happen. Acts chapter 20, verse 29. The Apostle Paul is speaking, and he says, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. This is why we need to make clear distinctions. This is why sometimes... Parents, you say to your children, I think Billy's parents are foolish. Um, That's good parenting. It's necessary discipleship. And the Apostle Paul is, is warning them, look out. Despite what you may have heard, despite how many times they use the name of Jesus, despite the fact that they may have come from your own church, if they are teaching contrary to the apostolic truth, they're liars. Don't listen to them. Look at Jude, verse 3. It's written down there for you. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord. This is the danger. Now, the charismatic movement is not the only place, the only church where these false teachers grow, but boy, it seems to provide fertile soil. I I remember, do you remember the uh, televangelism scandals of the 80s? Jim Baker and Jimmy Swaggart crying on television over what they had done. There was an expose a number of years ago about Robert Tilton's ministry. It's located in northern Texas. If you send money and a prayer request to Robert Tilton, they open the envelope, throw it, uh, the prayer request and the envelope away, and cash your check. Uh, Creflo Dollar was recently arrested for assaulting his daughter. Ted Haggard was fired from his church for drug abuse and homosexual behavior. Benny Hinn and Paula White were photographed walking out of a hotel in, room, uh, hotel in Rome hand in hand. Uh, He was married at the time. She'd already divorced her husband. They were asked about it. What's going on here? And they said, well, don't worry about it. We were here spiritually communing with one another in this hotel apart from our spouses. And in order to clarify, to make it better, they said, well, uh, actually, we're also here in Rome to make a donation to the Vatican. That does not make it better. 
In 2011, uh, Charles Grassley, the senator, uh, ended a three-year investigation. He investigated specifically six six ministries of televangelists that operate under nonprofit status as ministries. Um, You don't need to be a Christian to know that it is wrong to accept donations from people who live in poverty in order to support your own lavish lifestyles. You don't have to be a Christian to know that. In fact, maybe you're not a Christian because you, you've heard about these people or you've known about these people. You see them. If they're representatives of Christianity, I don't want to be a Christian either. Charlatans. And what disturbs us, what should disturb us most about many of these people is that they claim, because of their ability to speak in tongues or perform miracles or uh, have prophecies, they claim that they are most in touch with the Holy Spirit. They claim to have something in the Spirit, uh, of the Spirit, that those who uh, don't speak in tongues or don't perform miracles don't have. We perform signs and wonders because we have more of the Spirit than you do. And then live in this moral degradation filled with greed. Hmm. Charlatans, not apostles. There's, there's no correspondence between what happens today in most charismatic ministries and what happened in the New Testament. Now, this leads me finally to my last question that I want to ask and answer, and we'll do it briefly, of course. What do we emphasize as a congregation? Uh, We long for truth-saturated intimacy with God. That's what we're after. We're after truth-saturated intimacy with God. We do want real, warm, practical holiness. We believe, though, that, that, that knowing him and that holiness comes from knowing and treasuring God's truth that is contained for us in his word. Paul tells us in his letters what the Spirit does. What does the Spirit do in us? He makes us like Christ. What does the Spirit do in us? He forms us into a church, a body that is the manifold wisdom of God. The problem with, with many in the charismatic movement is that they have, experience, uh, they have elevated experience over truth or experience at the sacrifice of truth. They, they want to feel something, see something, experience something, do something. There's, there's different ways to look at the book of Acts, two different ways to look at the book of Acts. Some look at the book of Acts and they see what the apostles do and they say, I want that. I want to do that. I want to feel that. In contrast, we look at the book of Acts and we see what these eyewitnesses are are doing and we hear what they're saying about the Lord Jesus and we don't look at the book of Acts and say, I want that. We look at the book of Acts and say, I want him. I want to know the man. I want to know the the Lord they are talking about. I want to be intimately acquainted with with him because of what, what these eyewitnesses, these validated eyewitnesses said about him. In, in Matthew 16, uh, there were some teachers and they came to Jesus with a request. Look at Matthew 16 here. The Pharisees and Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him 
by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. Give us a sign. He replied, when evening comes, you say it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, today it will be stormy for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a sign. But none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. Jesus then left them and went away. Now what in the world is the sign of Jonah? Why is it a a wicked generation, an adulterous generation that wants a sign? Remember, Jonah was a prophet who spent three days in the belly of a whale and and came out. um, And as it were, he came back from the dead. Their own Bible had told them about a great prophet who had been buried and came out of a whale after three days. And now one like Jonah is standing in their presence. Only he's better than Jonah. And the only sign they need is they need to look at him. Here I am. I'm better than any sign. I'm better than any prophet. uh, The book that you have testifies about me and you should see it. And long for me. There were 12 men who walked with Jesus during his whole ministry. 500 people saw him resurrected, but 12 were especially commissioned as eyewitnesses. And the Spirit came and verified them through miracles. And they wrote down in this book what they saw and what they heard. And we want to know this same Christ. And the Spirit works through this book to teach you about Him and to make you like Him. I know I haven't answered all of your questions about signs and wonders and tongues, but what I want you to see is we're not taking the second best. We're not distracted by signs and wonders. We are after the Word-saturated life. That's the Holy Spirit life. Let's pray, shall we? Lord, I thank you for this uh, very patient congregation who is interested in knowing what your word says. We are uh, those who seek after truth to the best of our ability. And Lord, it is, it is, it, it's true. Some, sometimes we... We hear about things that happen or we see things that happen and, and we wonder if we're missing out. We, we confess to you. We, we have that, that, that question. Remind us, great God, remind us by your powerful spirit who is active in our church. Remind us through your word that you have sent your spirit to exalt your son And we want to know him. We want to know him through what you have said. We exalt, O Holy Spirit, that you are able to do great miracles through your servants. This is awesome to to read about. Would you, by that same power, transform us to make us more like Jesus Christ? That we might walk in joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and meekness and self-control. And that we might know and glorify our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray these things together, saying, Amen.